year of my life, that's almost 52 years so far, the world has become a worse and worse place. Every year we have... Ah, there it looks like, Kevin. Hello, indeed. I'm sorry that uh, we had that minor connection, probably. Uh, first world problems, though, Paul. Welcome back to the show. Uh, it's nice to be back. Uh, all the stuff we've been talking about is happening faster and faster. Faster and faster. Every time I every time I observe what's going down around us, I can't help but think back to the great mathematician Albert Bartlett and his expression, quote, one of the greatest shortcomings of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, <coughs> are we on now? I'd like uh, to we are indeed. We, we are yes, indeed. I was going to say, uh, I've been waiting <coughs> for a visit from my colleague, who I think you had on once, uh, Gerardo. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Gerardo Ceballos yes. from Mexico. And his yes. flight has been canceled the second time because of the uh, decline in, in international travel connected with the, um, the new virus. Uh, wow. Just the uh, airlines, if they don't have full, full planes are canceling and pushing the people to the next, uh, in Mexico City at least, to the next flight. So the impacts are already being felt, even yeah, right at the here. level of the economy. Yeah, I mean, this is the most important scientific conference in the world, when Gerardo and I get together so we can drink cerveza. <laughs> if the two of you don't mind, I'm going to... I'm going to back up for a minute and actually introduce our guest. We had a bit of a rocky start there. Today we are delighted to have Dr. Paul Ehrlich on the show for the third time. He last joined us 11 months ago for our March 2019 show. Dr. Ehrlich needs no indication, no introduction, and certainly not to our audience. Nonetheless, a few words are in order. Paul is the Bing Professor of Population Studies of the Department of Biology at Stanford University. He is a renowned biologist and ecologist, best known for his warnings about the consequences of human population growth in light of a single finite planet. He has received a MacArthur Fellowship, the Blue Planet Prize, the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, the Eminent Ecologist Award from the Ecological Society of America, and the Crawford Prize in Biosciences, otherwise known as the Nobel Prize for disciplines not covered by the Nobel. The list goes on, but we have a show to do. Professor Paul Ehrlich, welcome, welcome to Nature Bass Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Wonderful to be back. Yes, it's great to hear your voice again, Paul. First, I'd like to discuss the ongoing incineration of the Australian bush, the immolation of over one and a quarter billion animals and an unknown number of insects and bugs, and the potential triggering of extinction cascades as detailed in the 2018 Strona and Bradshaw paper that I sent you. It, it seems inevitable to me that those cascades could already be unfolding. What are, what are your thoughts on what is currently happening in a nation you have been visiting and conducting field research in for many years? Well, yeah, the, the co-author of that paper, Corey Bradshaw, is an old, maybe the best working ecologist in Australia today and um, an old colleague. I shouldn't say he's a young colleague with whom I've written a lot. Uh, but I spent, Anna and I spent three weeks in Sydney in November. And if you <clears throat> may have heard my coughing and so on earlier, my throat has yet to fully recover from breathing smoke for much of those three weeks. It was absolutely horrendous. And we're really concerned now about many of our friends, our older friends, uh, breathing the equivalent of a pack of cigarettes plus a day, and our younger friends who have homes, uh, as most Australians do, near bush, uh, and are in great, uh, often in great danger. In fact, one of our youngest friends uh, is in Canberra at the moment, and I got a picture of her, she's about 24 now, I think, uh, coming back from her job wearing a mask because Canberra has been had the fires within about 15 miles of the center of city. And so uh, the loss of biodiversity there, already horrendous from uh, various Australian policies, uh, has of course gotten much worse. And 
there's no reason to believe it won't get worse still. Even this year's Murdoch summer is not over. We call them Murdoch summers because, of course, we have to give credit to Rupert Murdoch, the one human being who's probably done more to kill people in the future than anyone else by with his Fox News and his Australian newspaper and so on, uh, having a big influence on blocking any sensible measures on climate disruption in the world, particularly in the United States uh, and uh, and Australia, uh, two of the really big contributors to climate disruption. So I could rave on, but uh, I'm very concerned about Australia and Australians because we have so many friends there and we really love the country. And uh, its biota, its remaining mammals and so on are so fascinating and disappearing so fast. It's incredible what the Murdoch press are doing and have done. One of the things that they did in in recent weeks is they spread a whole lot of rumours that the fires were not related to climate change and that they were started by arsonists. And it turned out to be completely mendacious and disingenuous. They knew knew perfectly well. They claimed, I think, that 200 of the fires had been started by arsonists. What there were were something the Australian local governments finally passed laws saying no fires now. This is a fireless time. And there were in all of Australia about 200 arrests, but only something like uh, uh, 10 of them had anything to do with possible arson. The other arrests or citations were from people being caught smoking or having a backyard barbecue or something. Uh, You know, the sort of things that happen in the U.S. or anywhere else when you try and have no-burn regimes. Some people miss it or they think that a cigarette isn't a fire and so on, and so they get cited. Uh, But that was, they knew perfectly well that they were lying. Uh, But, of course, a great tradition carried on here by uh, a thug of a president. I can't remember his name anymore, but he, he lies about a thousand times a day, about as quick as he can talk. The way to tell our our president is lying is very simple. You just see if his lips are moving. (laughs) Hey, one of the things I'd like to ask about is a concept that I'm only just learning about, and it's um, called uh, dryland salinity. Is there a possibility that after all these trees have burned in Australia that the salt table will come up because the the water is not being... uh, um, replaced. Y- yeah. So you're breaking is that up a, possible- a little. I, I'm sorry. That's no, all right. I think I got the question. Basically, um, first of all, when you cut down forests, you tend to generally trend to create dark, uh, to create droughts, because most of the water in the atmosphere is water that's transpired from the soil into the atmosphere from plants, particularly from trees. And so if you burn down the trees or you cut down the trees, there's less water in the atmosphere. Curiously enough, that leads to less rain. Uh, so the, the situation is made worse in that way. And of course, if you keep sucking the water out of the, <coughs> out of the ground, either your reservoirs, re- your reservoirs get lower or you get saltwater intrusion if you're pulling the water out somewhere close to the coast. And saltwater, of course, doesn't support trees. Human beings can't drink it, and so on and so forth. So the general approach in Australia, A, mining and burning coal, which makes the droughts worse, and cutting down the forests, which makes the droughts worse, uh, leads to fires that kill people, destroy buildings, and eventually uh, wipe out huge amounts of biodiversity. It's not a cheery story. Oh, and also, it's, it's without a doubt now that these droughts are going to get worse because there are less trees around to create the sky rivers. You know, this is that positive reinforcing feedback loop scenarios that we've all been dreading and that are kicking in. Yeah, we're, you know, I, I think probably the last time or maybe the first time we talked, I talked about... Um, the prospect of a collapse of civilization. Uh, since then, I've become convinced we're in the beginning of the collapse now that, for example, Trump is not so much a cause as a symptom, a symptom of the fact that 
Our educational systems are busted. Most people have no clue what's going on in the world. And even with Australia burning, there still are people who are denying uh, that human activities are disrupting the climate. I'm glad that you brought that up about civilization collapse, Um, because I wanted to discuss with you a a 2018 article that Damien Carrington wrote in The Guardian, quoting you, and the the title of the article was Collapse of Civilization is a Near Certainty Within Decades. As now we see the speed up in in, um, uh, nonlinear changes taking place in the biosphere, do do you think that that taking place in, in within decades is still appropriate, or do you think it's actually we're heading to that unfolding now or somewhere in between? Well, I think we're in the beginning of an unfolding now <clears throat> as we're seeing in place after place that democratic governments no longer can support themselves. Uh, and uh, you have the uh, thugs, for instance, that are running the United States at the moment. You know, outright criminals, people who care not at all about the country, the majority of people in the country and so on, only their own profits. Uh, and there was just another meeting of the world destroyers in Davos, Switzerland, uh, where the super rich get together and plan more growth, which means more profits for them, they think. Uh, a lot of them will look pretty good with their heads on pikes, and I think that's not unlikely to happen in the next couple of decades. Yeah, I make the joke that very soon these people will be running from children armed with pitchforks. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that the President of the United States found it necessary um, to answer back to a 15-year-old who was, of course, 10 times as smart as he is. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing how ignorant some of our politicians can be. And seeing Trump uh, on the TV every day saying things that are wrong, he even we have a big football game of some sort on, I think it's called the Toilet Bowl the other day. Uh, and the team from Kansas City won. And so he congratulated the state of Kansas, not knowing that Kansas City, where the team is, is in Missouri. Uh, he can't even keep the states and cities straight. He confuses Bangladesh uh, with Ukraine. Uh, what can I tell you? Well, as oh, you I tell you, so I'm going to have a drink. I can't talk <laughs> about this stuff with my Sydney throat. <laughs> well, Straight Paul, gin. <laughs> good idea. You have con- conducted considerable field research, including in some faraway places. And as a result, you've seen significant changes in the ecosystems, excluding Australia, where the changes are obvious at this point. What would you consider the most dramatic changes you've seen? And can you describe those changes for us? Well, I, I, I've seen them in all sorts of places. For example, right on Stanford campus, uh, we have a 1,200-acre biological reserve. And over a period of close to half a century, I watched the um, butterfly fauna there die out as a result of climate change and pr- primarily and also Um, various local uh, pollution issues. Uh, All over the tropics, I have revisited places where I once did research and found uh, the whole ecosystem totally changed. For example, in Trinidad, uh, where we worked on the dynamics of long-winged butterfly populations, uh, when we returned 20, 30 years later, we found there no longer (coughs) are the forests that we originally worked in, they had been replaced entirely uh, or almost entirely by squash plantations. Uh, Any place you go around the world where you've been before, it tends to have run downhill. From Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which we visited uh, during the the Vietnam War and then fairly recently, uh, the whole area has changed. Uh, it, it's ver- almost d- impossible to go anywhere uh, <clears throat> where you have been before and know the biology, not to see dramatic changes. When we first went to Africa uh, in night was 1965, roughly, we frequently saw black rhinos. Now today, it is an incredible treat 
to be able to see a black rhino. Their populations have been uh, basically totally decimated. There are very few of them left. There are some white rhinos, although one whole group of white rhinos has gone extinct. And the frequency of white rhinos now is you have to go out and hunt them, whereas in the early 19, mid-1960s, we saw herds of them in southern Africa. So uh, it's almost no place you can go uh, where if you know anything about what it was like in the past, you see it going down the drain, particularly biologically. Uh, the, in the eastern United States, where certain butterflies used to be super abundant, and there are descriptions of entire valleys filled with them, uh, one species, the zebra swallowtail, was commented on that way. And in a lifetime of collecting butterflies off and on in the eastern United States, I caught one. Um, that's the, the statistics on the collapse of insect populations have been dramatically published on in the last few years. And basically about half of wildlife has disappeared in the last 40 years. And a huge proportion of the insect populations, which may not seem important to most people, but if you get rid of the insects, we'll all starve. Uh, so uh, I think it's a good idea to keep some of them around. <laughs> Paul, I've been trying for years to get across the point that the rate of environmental change is fundamental to the ability of organisms to survive. And I've largely failed with that quest. It seems that it's too difficult a concept to understand. Can you help me out? Can well, you on the I rate think it's, it's basically incredibly simple if you've ever, say, been a gardener or raised tropical fish, for example. Um, if you're raising tropical fish in Aquaria, uh, you know if your heater goes off, what happens? You come in the next morning, the fish are all floating on the top of the water, they're dead. Uh, if you plant certain plants in your garden uh, that came from an area, say, far north of where you are, uh, and then you get a really hot summer, guess what? The plants gork. Uh, if you, the other way around, if you plant plants that came from very, say, put a a palm tree and try and grow a palm tree in your garden in New Jersey, guess what? First cold spell, it's gone. This is because every organism, plant, animal, microorganism, evolved to live in a certain environment. Uh, and if that environment isn't around, if the habitat isn't there, you can't have the organisms. And so what you're doing when you create rapid climate disruption, for example, is you're changing the environment. You're making the water hotter or colder. You're making it more acid or less acid. You're making the field uh, too wet or too dry for the organisms that are there or the forest. And so rapid environmental change means you're going to lose many of the other organisms which support our lives. And you've got to remember we are utterly dependent for our lives on the free services we get from the rest of biology, from the other organisms of our planet. So if you know how sensitive things are to environmental change, as I say, gardeners and tropical fish fanciers right at the front lines of that. You know, if you, if you want to breed certain fish, you have to have a certain acidity of the water, you have to have a certain temperature of the water, or they just won't breed or they'll die. If you want to grow plants, you have to have the right kind of soil, you have to have the right regime of rain, the right regime of temperature, and so on, or that plant won't grow there. And so, basically, it's very simple. Uh, the more rapid we make environmental change, the more we're losing our other living companions, and unhappily, we're totally dependent on them. Oh, that is exactly why I sent you the Stroner and Bradshaw paper. And then, of course, you, you already know the scientists behind it. And you could see where my concerns were coming from. Well, hey, sure. in, relation to, uh, in relation to Geraldo Ceballos and, and his plane getting cancelled, I sent you another paper uh, from Scientific American, I think it was, about the aerosol masking effect. And one of the things that Guy and I have been concerned about is that if this pandemic gets bad enough for them to cancel or ground airlines for a while, we could get that rapidity of change with um, the loss of the aerosol masking effect. 
What what are your thoughts on that? And and maybe after you finish, I'd like to hear what Guy's got to say about it too, please. Well, Guy doubtless knows more about it than I do because I'm no atmospheric physicist, but there is a very big literature indicating that if we cut down uh, on the masking effect, that is that a... uh, Contrails from airplanes, uh, soot from factories and so on, uh, either absorb solar energy that then doesn't reach the uh, uh, ground or reflect it back into, reflect it back into space. Uh, and that generally, although I, I haven't looked at the literature myself recently, tends to cool the planet to make the heating that we're doing slower. What I have no idea about is, for example, if you canceled all airline flights uh, and uh, that reduced the contrails, whether that would be a significant uh, increase in heating or a small increase in heating compared to uh, the heating effect of, uh, of all the fossil fuels that we continue to burn. You want to remember, with all the crap in the media and so on for the last few decades about how important it is to get off of fossil fuels, to stop burning coal and oil, to stop you know, using uh, millions of years ago sun, sunshine now, uh, we still are putting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every year. So we have that huge effect. And it would be, uh, obviously, if you could clean up all of air pollution, uh, the kind that's bad for us, that would be good, uh, but it might add to the climate disruption problem. There was a lot of stuff, if you want to look into this, but my, this is, you caught me at, the, uh, at a bad time. I didn't have a chance to do any research, but there was a huge amount of interest on this kind of issue at the time that they were thinking about converting to massive use of supersonic transports and the area, the pollution that they put into the stratosphere and how important that would be. So if you're interested, Guy, in looking at that stuff, that's where I would start looking to get uh, some actual numbers on what it might mean. Uh, I frankly think that the, um, the uh, civilization killers at Davos would keep the airlines fl- flying as long as they could make a nickel on it. In other words, uh, I think the fact that the, the health of the public doesn't come into the calculations of most of the super rich that meet at Davos. Well, I certainly agree with that. We see increasing evidence every year with every meeting at Davos. Now, the uh, according to a scientist, and I don't know whether this has been published in the peer-reviewed literature or not, but three days after 9-11 and a profound reduction in air travel from the United States as well as the rest of the world, there was a one degree Celsius change in temperature. They did not report the whether that was an increase or a decrease or a combination of the two. So it might well have been, for example, a half degree increase during daytime temperatures and a half degree decrease during nighttime temperatures. We just don't even know. And I can't believe that, the, that nobody has followed up and reported the data in a more appropriate manner than happened then. Or maybe there's a lot of pressure against presenting that kind of information. But in any event, the aerosol masking effect has been well studied within the last 10 years. And because of the rate of change following even a relatively minor reduction in aerosol masking, that would pose significant problems, I would suggest, for all life on Earth. James Hansen indicates that the change would occur in about five days. And the general consensus among other climate scientists seems to be six weeks plus or minus. But either way, that's such a rapid change compared to anything that organisms are accustomed to dealing with. Can you comment briefly on on that notion? Yeah, well, again, um, it's an area of my colossal ignorance in general because I'm a lousy uh, atmospheric scientist. On the other hand, <clears throat> things we do know, I think for sure, are uh, small differences can have dramatic effects. That is, a one-degree shift doesn't sound like much because uh, it's in a global average, and when you have a one-degree shift in your office, either warmer or colder, it doesn't really hit you. We, we, we at Fahrenheit or Celsius. But again, there's another place we can look to know that such small changes are dramatic and very harmful. Um, there were, uh, I, 
I'm, I'm now dredging into memory, but if I recall correctly, Tambora, Volcano, you know, I think it was 1816, and uh, Krakatoa around 1856 or 60, somewhere around in there. I don't remember. Two volcanoes in Indonesia blew up. Tambora was the biggest one, uh, but Krakatoa was mon monumental also. And if I recall, the estimates are that both of them caused about a one-degree shift in the global average over various periods. Tambora, in particular, is famous for having caused what was called the 1816, I think it was, was the summer, with the year without a summer. And there were vast crop failures uh, by that in connection with that one degree global average change. Much worse storms, certain um, plagues got gone faster uh, than others because of the changes in temperature. Uh, there were a lot of people starved because of it. And there were similar effects after Krakatoa, which was a smaller event. And again, if I recall correctly, the average changes caused were in the vicinity of one degree Fahrenheit. So uh, small differences between large numbers can have very dramatic effects uh, on the people we care about, namely us. Right. Absolutely. Not to mention all the other species that have a difficult time adapting to those very rapid changes. So you're and right. We have difficulty adapting to rapid changes in them. Absolutely. Now, uh, based on the research I've seen, Benjamin Franklin was the first to describe, describe the aerosol masking effect. And it was based on his study of volcanoes. And so it's pretty clear that events over which we have no control, like volcanic eruptions, can mask the incoming sunlight. And because we, we have contributed so greatly to industrial activity within the last couple of centuries, we have also caused a, a, a dimming effect from incoming radiation. I just wanted to comment on that. Kevin, did you want to follow up? Um, yes, I, I'd like to get back to um, uh, the subject of the collapse of industrial civilization. According to an article in theconversation.com, the insurance claims in Australia could be as much as $230 billion when using the Deloitte Access Economics Ratio of Intangible to Tangible Asset Costs. That's Deloitte's um, um, guesstimate. I simply can't imagine that the insurance industry can hold this, con this contingent liability for long, especially considering the feedback loops that we're seeing, and we've lost the sinks, so the, the stored carbon from those forests have been blasted into the atmosphere. I think we're all just about to learn more about the exponential function. And I think that the, the, the tipping over of the insurance industry could be the beginning of the collapse of that um, paradigm. What well, do you let, think about let, that? Let me, uh, let me back up just a little bit to add that um, I first got really interested in Tambora and Krakatoa uh, when I was writing the population bomb and writing about the possible uh, environmental effects of a nuclear war uh, because of the huge fires that occurred, the firestorms that occurred in Europe and Japan during the Second World War showed how much crap could be lofted into the atmosphere. And of course, when we did the nuclear winter studies, uh, the interest in the volcanic events became very large. And uh, the, the sad thing is that we still have uh, a, uh, what I call it as a, mutual, a mutually assured uh, imbecility in that the U.S. and the Russians still have enough nuclear weapons to cause a nuclear winter and kill everybody, um, even though we each have more than 100 times the nuclear missiles required to end either country. So one much neglected source of a total social collapse is the increasing chances now of a full-scale nuclear war. And of course, that's started um, just a relatively few years ago with, in the U.S. with us redoing our nuclear weapons to make it look like we were ready for a first strike on Russia. In this particular case, the blame is largely U.S., but the Russians are pitching in. Then 
at the other end of the spectrum is what you're talking about. And there's a lot of discussion of basically a global financial collapse, which would have horrendous effects around the world, but would not uh, be the same impact on biodiversity or our future as even a small scale nuclear war. Uh, but one of the issues is if it's large enough to basically um, cause a breakdown of the uh, of the World Wide Web and, and not enough power to run uh, servers and so on, the, the world is now so dependent on the digital world uh, that even a financial collapse uh, could cause vast problems over the entire planet for everyone and all the other organisms, too. Uh, that's the most hopeful scenario. That is, that we have a, that the debt pyramid finally collapses. Everybody knows there's much more debt than there are assets to back it. Um, and it's a, basically the world, the global economy is one vast Ponzi scheme. And <laughs> when it starts to go, it can be quite spectacular, I'm sure. But from what we've seen in things like the hyperinflation in Germany, after the First World War and so on. Right, and we have a rather significant problem now, far greater than it was post-World War II. That's the nuclear power stations that are scattered around the globe, more than 450 of them. If there's a significant financial event, perhaps some people would stop showing up for work. Those are very sensitive systems that we're talking about in nuclear power facilities. Can you comment, preferably in an optimistic manner? Optimistic <laughs> <laughs> Well, nuclear nuclear power properly run uh, presents in some ways fewer fewer risks and smaller risks than um, fossil fuel fired power plants. The problem is in the design and proper running um, phrases of it. Because, for instance, in the U.S., um, the uh, what most people who understand that Trump is a is a fool and a crook don't realize that the damage he's already done may be semi-permanent. That is, um, the U.S., for instance, the uh, uh, Department of Energy controls all the nuclear weapons and materials and uh, is now badly manned. In other words, uh, the U.S. government, which does all kinds of things that are extremely important in the U.S. and in the globe, has basically had m many of the smart people just leave. They don't want to work for a failed crook. Uh, and uh, if even if the Democrats get a reasonable candidate and win next time, it's going to take maybe a full decade or more before outfits like the Environmental Protection Agency can really get back uh, to having competent people and doing competent work. And we haven't got decades. So I tend to be not entirely optimistic about our futures. I'm very optimistic about mine because I know that I'm not going to be uh, suffering in 2030 uh, the way my grandchildren will be, or my great grandchildren. I, I would, I would like, I would like to go back to that issue of uh, the nuclear winter. Um, Carl Sagan did um, some good presentations where he discussed along the same lines of what you just said about what it would be like. Um, I, I, I have a theory that as we get further into further and further into what's obviously going to be runaway, that the psychopaths with their hands on those big red buttons will create a nuclear winter as a cooling device. I know that sounds completely insane, but if we have a look at Donald Trump and the people he surrounded himself with, I can see that being used. What, would you, what's, what are your thoughts on that, uh, that theory? Well, I, I think the wag the tail movie had an essential thing in it that makes everybody who follows these things nervous. That is, uh, if Trump looks like he's going to lose the election, uh, first of all, uh, a lot of people don't believe he would leave even if he lost the election. That is, he would claim it was a, uh, a hoax, a miscount, a um, misinformation, and try and remain in office. If, on the other hand, it really looks to him as the wire grows closer that he's going to lose, then starting a war would be uh, a, a sort of ideal solution for a fool like him because he doesn't understand that um, uh, skyscrapers that he's built will very easily go down in a nuclear war along with everything else. So uh, 
I, I think it's worth, well worth thinking about these things. The trouble is, it's too late to prevent a Trump presidency. We've already had one that's largely wrecked key parts of the U.S. government and the world government. Uh, and uh, so we've made the world an even more dangerous place. And, of course, all of my colleagues have been sick for years over what's being done to the environment at Trump's urging. In other words, you've got to understand that he's somebody who has been spending his time making the world more inequitable, much more dangerous, and destroying the human environment as fast as he can make money for his buddies. And, uh, well, what can I say? I am not optimistic. I don't think he's going to be beaten in the next election, which is a commentary on the school systems in the United States and the universities, for example. Uh, U.S. universities used to be at the front lines of intellectual change and so on. When I first came to Stanford, there was ongoing debates about whether or not research could be supported by the government or by industry and so on, what was ethical, what was moral. University presidents were often intellectual, uh, public intellectuals arguing about such things. There's no leadership from the universities now at all. The only thing they want is more money. Uh, and uh, they're teaching the same old crap they taught 50 or 100 years ago. There's no transformation into the fact that the world is now facing these existential threats. So what is your source of hope? It's got to be from the bottom up. And uh, there is some start there in the youngsters. Uh, but I don't think there's time enough, to be honest. But if there's anything to do, it's things like Kevin Hester getting on the tube and telling the kids to get out there and fight. I agree with you, Paul. I think it's too late. But even if the Democrats win, even if the Green Party wins, for that matter, the next presidential election, I suggest that the ice-free Arctic is still locked in, as incorrectly projected by a 2012 paper in the Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences, which indicated that we'd have an ice-free Arctic in 2016, plus or minus three years. But I still think it's, it's clearly on the near-term horizon, and... As the president of Finland said in a joint press conference with President Trump in 2017, if we lose the Arctic, meaning if we lose the Arctic ice, we lose the globe. And yeah, Most people don't understand that <clears throat> losing the Arctic ice means a lot to them because it changes the weather system, the climate system, in a way that brings nasty weather down longer uh, to places like the United States. Right, and we've known for a long time that the Arctic is the planetary air conditioner. So if we lose the Arctic ice, something that has never happened in the history of our species on the planet, well, that could be the existential threat that takes us all out. Yeah, people have to understand when, when scientists talk about that, is that the ice reflects energy away from the Earth because it's reflective. You see the shots of Earth from outer space, you see how bright. The Arctic is, and of course that energy then doesn't warm the Earth. If you get rid of the ice, you have water up there, and it absorbs the incoming solar energy and heats things up. So the very process of heating and melting the ice makes the heating worse. It's a positive feedback mechanism, uh, and nobody knows for sure exactly what the results will be. And I'm certainly happy personally not to be around to see them. I'm seeing enough of them right now. I read one paper that said that the loss of the sea ice and the albedo effect has the ability to shunt us 25 years forward in the, in the time frame of climate change. Just that one, that one effect itself could accelerate it by 25 years. And of course that And you know that's not even counting the possibility of the discharge of methane from the um, East Siberian Arctic shelf, which is very vulnerable or, or to from permafrost in many other places. And of course losing the ice is going to change the biology of the entire area, so we'll lose a big slug of biodiversity in the same in the same thing. We're 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 wrecking our only home in the universe. And we're doing it faster every day. In fact, I would suggest well, that, that, that the near-term consequences of an ice-free Arctic include 
methane release, loss of albedo, heating of the ocean, it could be sufficient to trigger a five to six degree global average temperature rise within a very few years. And that's the those are the numbers, five to six C temperature rise, that Strona and Bradshaw pointed to as causing the loss of all life on Earth, the extinction of all life on Earth as a result of co-extinction. So this is not something to be taken lightly, sports fans. Yeah. You know, I, the, the, the point that the most of the extinction numbers that we see are species extinctions and underrate the seriousness of the extinction and destruction of biodiversity problem from two basically two points of view by the time a species go ex goes extinct it's long been basically in uh, not significant factor in serving the things that human beings must get from other life forms uh, and what we're seeing now is a dramatic loss of populations everywhere uh, and just because a few individuals hang around the uh, species extinction doesn't go up but the population extinctions are soaring all the time. And I'll be damned if I can remember what the second thought I had was, but after all, I'm an old man. <laughs> I think one thing I'd like to bring up about the Arctic and the permafrost and the methane issue is that when people look at a picture of the globe as it's portrayed in Mercator's projection, they don't understand how big the Arctic is. 24% of the Northern Hemisphere is, was covered in permafrost. And when you look at it from Mercator's projection, you don't see the true size of that area. So I think people underestimate how important it is because of that illusion. What do you think about that? This, this comes from my studies and my, my life as a sailor, where I've spent a lot of time working on charts. Yeah, maps can be very, very misleading, and Mercator projections uh, also. It depends on, again, how they're pronounced. They, in some sense, they make the Arctic look bigger, or the Antarctic, because the, the, the small, the, the top of the globe and the bottom of the globe are spread out all over the place, but they don't, re, they don't really re, um, hit people because they don't see anything up there that's familiar to them. If you look at the Mercator projection, they can see the states of the United States, but they have no idea really uh, what's above the uh, U.S.-Canada border. Uh, and uh, the Arctic, I, I've spent a lot of time up there, I was last there last summer, and the changes are so dramatic and the area is so important to the world that it's just really scary to travel up there. And of course, the poor people who live there uh, are getting the Inuit are getting to be in deeper and deeper trouble. And there's a lot of polit political nonsense going on as well. Uh, the Canadians moved a bunch of Inuit, of Eskimos, uh, into an area where I had been in, in the 1950s, a place called Resolute Bay uh, on Cornwallis Island in the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. They moved the Inuit in there so they could claim sovereignty over the Arctic islands, uh, and the Inuit were starving. They hated it, but they wouldn't let them move back. They, it was basically a slavery operation, and they're still at it because um, Canadian icebreakers now are happy to help tourist ships move through the Arctic, again, to support their claims to sovereignty over the Arctic islands. Uh, Canadians are not doing much, however, to end climate change uh, because, of course, they've got thoughts that if you open the Arctic up, Canada will own all these wonderful mineral resources, probably be able to get oil and coal to speed the melting of our planet. Uh, it's disgusting wherever you look. Russians are in the same game, U.S. in the same game. It's almost as if the whole system is driven by money. <laughs> Somebody told you that. <laughs> I want to take a turn for the personal here, Paul. Your books have left their mark on me. Who were among the writers and speakers influential for you, and how did they change your path, if at all? Well, actually, my entire path was almost determined by two writers. The best of them was a guy named Vogt, V-O-G-T, um, and the other was Fairfield Osborne, and they both wrote books 
about, among other things, the importance of what was happening to the environment and the role that human overpopulation was playing. And they both published, if I recall correctly, in the late 40s, and I read them in the early 50s when I was an undergraduate at Penn and discussed them thoroughly with my uh, mostly World War II veteran roommates at the time. And they certainly changed my entire view of the world um, dramatically. And uh, I also got um, a big boost personally from um, Rachel Carson's um, book, The Silent Spring, because I had become very concerned about pesticide use <clears throat> when I found I couldn't raise butterflies in northern California and in northern New Jersey anymore because everything was sprayed with DDT. And my first job as a graduate student had been studying the evolution of resistance to DDT. And Rachel came along and, and really started to develop the big picture. And that was having her companionship. I don't mean physically, I only met her once. But having her in the game uh, really helped me in my thinking and helped me along. The population bomb, if you take a look at it, has a substantial amount in it about uh, pesticide use. Our original title was supposed to be Population, Resources, and Environment, but the publisher picked a different title. I am so glad that you mentioned uh, um, Rachel Carson's book, The Silent Spring, because it was a really formative one for me as well. Um, one of the things that I uh, read in a National Geographic article just recently is that we've only identified 14% of all species on the planet. Well, my concern is that when, you, when we're doing the incredible damage we're doing and we only have identified so few species, what are the chances of us knocking over Keystone we haven't oh. even identified? You know, I have a standard line <clears throat> for this. I think the... Uh, if you'll excuse me for saying so, the various estimates of how many species there are are built on a, uh, a <clears throat> it's a castle built on the foundations of an outhouse. Uh, the, uh, it all depends on what you cover and what your definition of species is. The whole idea of species definition, there's a huge literature. It's basically silly. Uh, species are different kinds. And if you add in bacteria, uh, you get a one number, and if you add in viruses, that number goes up a million times or something. The basic point is that you don't have to know that a beach is eroding. In, uh, don't, don't, you can't say you don't know a beach is eroding because you haven't counted the number of grains of sand, given them names, and said how close they are to each other. It's obvious that when a beach is eroding, just like it's obvious that biodiversity is eroding away now, at a very rapid pace is first of all we even if we had already named 50 percent of all organisms we haven't got time that took it that's taken us a couple, essentially 200 years we haven't got 200 years to deal with the rest because a they're disappearing at a high rate and b many of them are evolving into different things all the time so uh the issue of how much of biodiversity we've named is a big issue, um, but it's not a big issue for any scientist who understands what the hell is going on. It's a trivial issue because we know we're destroying biodiversity. We know the rate at which it's being destroyed is going up all the time and is way higher than the rate it was destroyed uh, in past mass extinctions. That's what you have to know. And the people that are busy naming new ones and so on, would be better off trying to preserve the ones we've got. Right. The rise in global average temperature exceeds by about an order of magnitude the change in global average temperature during any previous mass extinction event. Yeah. And so, not surprisingly, the rate of species extinction is occurring at a similar pace, although, obviously, we can't even keep up. We're driving species to extinction that we don't even know exist. Exactly. And... You know, personally, I'm surprised we're stable, still able to have this conversation in, in light of the ongoing loss of habitat for human animals. So I'm pleasantly surprised that we get to go on the air every month. Anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, people say to me, 
you're so depressed and so on. Why do you keep going? Well, the answer is A, I love doing science. B, as I tell all my junior colleagues, keep at it. If the collapse doesn't work entirely, then for the reset, the things you've learned may be very helpful. Otherwise, have fun doing your research. Uh, and if the world ends, uh, you'll at least have had that fun. Right. And, you know, sorry, know, uh, this seems to apply to you, Paul. I've been telling people for years that I'm not depressed. I'm a carrier. And I don't see any reason to be depressed about the fact that we get to be here on Earth at this very exciting time when when there's still the fundamental living planet present for us to observe and be part of. And yeah, no other species of Homo has ever experienced a mass extinction event. So that's good fun, too. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm depressed about what's going to happen to a lot of people I love, a lot of younger people, but I'm not any more gut depressed. Uh, in other words, I don't, I don't stay awake all night worrying about these things. Um, as uh, Kevin knows, I can, I've discovered that drinking fine New Zealand wines uh, keeps me from getting dizzy as the world circles the drain. So. <laughs> Well, hey, um, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Uh, we've come to the end of our hour, Paul. Thank you so much again for your time. It's um, my great pleasure. Have, thank you, sir. And many thanks to our listeners. Um, you can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of each month at 3 p.m. Eastern time. The next episode will feature a conversation with Collapsitarian Daniel Schumachenberger. I will be... It will be broadcast live on Tuesday afternoon, the 3rd of March. If you miss the broadcast, you can find the show at the archives at prn.fm. Thank you very much, Paul, and we'll hand it over to the studio.